0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans 1, and the fellows have some Bibles, so if you need one, we want everybody to have a Bible, get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you, that's yours to keep, our gift to you, the Word of God, the Scriptures are that important, we want everybody to have a copy, it's marked at Romans 1, but you see at the top of your outline that's inserted in your program, we'll be looking at a number of passages in this topical message today and why a topical message. Most of you know that normally we're in a book study and we take passage by passage in the particular book under consideration. We've been in the book of Ephesians, but our last message in Ephesians was April 10th. That's because we had Ordnance Sunday on April 17th. We had Easter on April 24th. Most of you know a couple of weeks ago my mother passed away and so I did not preach on May the 1st, Mother's Day was last week, we had a Mother's Day message. And now today, and for the next two Sundays, I'm going to have a three-week mini-series, about which I'll tell you in just a moment. And then after that, we're going to have uh, Father's Day, Uh, we have a couple of guest speakers, because I'm going to be out of town, and then we're going to have our pastors and training fellows preaching, so the next time we get to Ephesians will be July 17th. And we will start the second half of that six-chapter book. We've completed the first major portion, chapters 1 through 3, the doctrinal portion. We'll look at chapters 4 through 6, beginning on July 7, 17. The impetus for this brief series that we're going to do today and the next two Sundays is my observation in now 30 years of walking with Christ as an adult after having my, committed my life to him at age 19, and my observation after now 15 years of pastoral ministry. And in that time, I've observed that many of us know how to become a Christian, but we do not know how to live like Christians. Many of us have been taught how to be saved, or to be born again, or to become Christians all the synonyms the Bible uses to describe those who have initially come to Christ. We know that we must embrace the grace of God in the good news of Jesus Christ. That He has paid for our sin completely, all of our sin, past, present, and future. That He has perfectly obeyed God. And that we are given all of that, the payment that He made, the perfect life that He lived, when we come to Him and simply but ask when that happens we instantly become God's child and we know that we should live differently there may have been some very obvious issues in our lives that we know we needed to get rid of there may have been some habits in which we were engaged that we know needed to cease there may have been speech patterns that we needed to mute because they were unbecoming We began hanging out with people who had our experience. Or perhaps from a child, we grew up in a a home, and a church, where folks had come to Christ and it each changed in particular ways that you could observe. There were just certain things we didn't say, like those outside the group, outside of the church. There were places we didn't go, entertainments we didn't indulge all of them spoken or unspoken mores of the group, whether your family and or the church. So whether you grew up in that kind of environment or a family environment where you had learned that your whole life or you came to it as an adult, you learned that some things were considered to be acceptable, some unacceptable, and you began to abide by that list. And for the most part, happily so. It was good for us to change our ways. And if growing up in church, to avoid those ways altogether. I grew up that way. The Pentecostal church that my dad pastored was part of something called the Holiness Movement. And The Holiness Movement not only was comprised of Pentecostal churches, but other churches, including Baptist churches and Methodist churches and so on. And it rightly emphasized the fact that a Christian is different. As a matter of fact, the word holy in Scripture means set apart or different. The list of things that were considered Christian included things like, as I was growing up, we attended church four times a week. Sometimes revivals that were weeks long, every night, including school night. Until the Spirit wasn't moving anymore, no matter what time of night that was. It included Bible reading and prayer and memorization and so on, and it included a host of things that you don't do. You don't dance. You don't go to movies. Women were not to wear pants. You don't listen to rock music. Unless it's played backwards at a seminar put on by somebody telling you not to listen to it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You, <laughs> you know you're a fundamentalist if the only rock music you've ever heard was played backwards. And the truth is, I'm genuinely thankful for the emphasis on holiness, even if many of the particulars were not quite correct. And as we'll see, it could be harmful and, in fact, was to many. You see, in my church, the Pentecostal church in which I grew up, I was also taught that you could lose your salvation. That is, you could have a relationship with God, but then that relationship could be severed. It could cease at some point in the future by what you did or you failed to do. And so many, especially young people in the late 60s and the early 70s, were having a very hard time towing the line and thus in that Pentecostal church, having a hard time staying saved. My oldest brother, who is not a follower of Christ, he told me that when he was young, he was told by someone in the church he was going to hell because of what he had done. And he told me that he honestly thought this way, that if I'm already going to hell, if it's already hopeless, then I may as well enjoy my time as much as I can. And he's been pursuing that his entire life. I was blessed to, in addition, though, to my Pentecostal upbringing, for which I am thankful. My dad is now with the Lord. And even though if he were still alive today, we would obviously have some differences. I look forward to seeing him again in heaven. But during that time, I was blessed to attend and to graduate from a a Baptist high school that also emphasized holiness, being different. It had a lot of rules also, but it taught, and rightly, as I later discovered, that one could not lose his salvation by what he did or failed to do. But still, much on the list of do's and don'ts was the same. Attendance, reading, prayer, memorization, no dancing, no movies, no music, pretty much. We didn't have the no pants on women thing. But many Baptist churches did and still do. Now, as I learned in school about the grace of God in salvation, such that I could not keep my salvation myself or lose it by what I did or failed to do, I was so enamored with that grace, especially given my lose-your-salvation background, that it never occurred to me. Now, hear this. It really never occurred to me that our mostly unwritten written holiness code was the way for me to maintain my relationship with God. That never really occurred to me, and I've never thought that. And yet, I have observed that many people do think that. That many people think that the way you maintain a relationship with God is by the particular code that you keep. I had come out of an incorrect teaching that my relationship with God is based on what I do, and so the rules and regulations were not for me seen as my basis for a relationship with God. But as I say, I've discovered, and fairly slowly, I'm a slow learner, that a lot of people do think that. Some of you come from various kinds, whether Baptist, Pentecostal, it doesn't matter, various kinds of legalistic backgrounds, and you can relate to some of what I'm saying about the lists of do's and don'ts, and you found the gospel of salvation by grace to be liberating, not only at the time of salvation, but as you live out that salvation day to day, and some of you have never struggled then with thinking your relationship with God is based upon how well you keep the rules, because you were taught better before you came here, or perhaps you've come to understand that since you've been here. But many, many Christians misinterpret the emphasis on holiness. You've grown up in it or you've come into it as adults and you've dutifully and often happily conformed to the expected norms. And so you've put away certain bad things and you habitually practice certain other good things. And so you're holy in that sense. You religiously serve and attend and give and sing. And you are regularly joyless and angry and bitter and critical. And what a tragic, tragic thing. That there is a disconnect between your external behavior and your internal peace. And the truth is you know it. You know it every moment of every day. And here is why there is that disconnect. You have conformed externally, but you have not been transformed internally. And there is a world of difference between the two. Conforming externally versus being transformed internally. And your your critical attitude is toxic. Your thoughts and sometimes your words towards others are condescending. Your anger and bitterness boil just beneath the surface, surface, ready to erupt with just the right stimulus, whether at home or at work or on the golf course, but of course never at church. And your attempts at change have been experiential. Over the years, many of you have signed commitment cards, you've walked aisles, countless times you raised your hand at the end of a service to turn over yet another spiritual leaf, and nothing works. None of it lasts. You struggle with the same things over and over for years and years. And it doesn't last because your decisions to do more or to be better than or to be like so-and-so, all of those decisions have treated symptoms rather than the cause. The people that are closest to us see that, even if the people at church do not. If you have children, they see the hypocrisy. And they see the difference between what we are at church and what we are at home. And what we are like to their mother or to their father. And they will grow to be a fake. Or they may despise Christianity as fake and drop out altogether. One way you know that you're playing the conformity game is when your internal thoughts and attitude do not match your external presentation, especially when you're at church. Or, when your external behavior is one thing at church, it's another thing at home and work. Or, here's another, when you are resentful about your situation, whatever it is. How do you feel about your life? How are you with where God has you in life right now? And some of us are extremely resentful. And hear this, behind every resentment is a sense of entitlement. You see, this is one of the many dangers to the conformity approach to the relationship with God. It often creates an expectation of reward. I do the stuff, and so it should go reasonably well. And so, friend, hear this now. Make no mistake. If you are resentful about your situation, it is because deep down you believe you deserve better. And you know, you've been at church long enough now, maybe you grew up in it, to know this much about grace. What is grace? I mean, just, you know, the one simple definition that most of us have learned somewhere along the way about grace is this. It's undeserved favor from God. And yet we still, in the conformity approach, have come to believe, though would never say, that if I do the stuff, then it should turn out reasonably well. Grace is undeserved favor from God, but the performance treadmill that is the conformity approach says, I've performed, now where's the payoff? And so you seethe with internal resentment. And so that is why, today and for the next two weeks, we're going to look at this mini-series, Grace-Centered Living. And I trust that it will be of help to me, it will be of help to you as well, in the many circumstances and from the many backgrounds that are represented in this room. Let's ask God to help us, and then let's look together. Father, we need your grace every moment of every day. We need your grace now to help us have eyes that will see, hearts that are open to what you tell us in your word about the things that captivate us and draw us away from the true and living God to serve substitutes. We ask you today and over these next couple of weeks that you will take folks who are regularly resentful, bitter, and angry, critical, and you will transform them internally to be joyful and loving and delighted and enthusiastic followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to acknowledge my indebtedness to Pastor Tim Keller in New York, in his series, The Gospel in Life, for some of the insights that I'm going to to share with you that follow. And I said before we prayed that we struggle very often with the same things over and over and over, and that the problem is that we've been treating the symptoms rather than the disease. And so if that's the case, well, then what do we do? Well, we have an outline for you inserted in your program. I call your attention to that. There's some blanks there if you care to fill those in. What do we do? The first is this. First of all, recognize the root. I've had you turn to Romans chapter 1 because Romans chapter 1 explains the nature and the power of idolatry. And Romans 1 tells us that, it shows us that all of the breakdowns of life, spiritual and psychological and social, they all become, happen because we've worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. At all times, friends, every moment of every day, you and I are worshiping someone or something. Our hearts are disposed every moment of every day in this very moment. Your heart is inclined towards someone or something as supreme, and the Bible calls that worship further the bible teaches that if that someone or something toward which your heart is disposed is any one other than the true and living god then that worship is idolatrous worship and so here we are then walking around all of the time engaging in heart idolatry that is functionally ruling our hearts and then coming out in our attitudes, in our words, and in our behavior. And when a particular functional idol has you by the throat, you want that one or that thing more than anyone or anything else. God, many times, in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, spoke to His people about this tendency to wander from the true and living God toward God replacements, false gods, idols. One such place is in Jeremiah chapter 2. And this is the voice and language of Israel who say, it's no use because I love foreign gods and I must go after them. God says in Psalm number 106, of those people who professed Him as their God, they worshipped their idols. And those idols became a snare to them. The problems that you are experiencing in your relationships and in your attitude and in your criticism and joylessness, at root, at bottom, the Bible teaches are always a matter of who or what we worship. And our hearts are drawn to other persons or other things other than the true and living God. God says again, notice their adulterous hearts are the issue. And as a result, they have turned away from me and they have lusted, they have desired intensely. That's what that lust is about. They've lusted after their idols, whoever or whatever they are. So in psychological terms an idol is wherever you find your identity. Whatever is going to make you whole, whatever is going to make you fulfilled, whatever it is that you think you've got to have in order to be happy, that thing is the functional idol for you. In theological terms, an idol is wherever I get my righteousness. How is it that I'm right with God? And that situation, that relationship of that thing becomes your idol. And so what we must do as we recognize the root then of these issues with which we battle time after time and nothing ever changes, as we recognize that root, we have to identify the idols that functionally control our hearts. And those idols are anyone or anything that are more fundamental to you than God. One has put it this way, an idol is an inordinate desire for anything, an inordinate desire for anything or anyone. And notice this, it's an inordinate desire for anything or anyone, especially good things. You go, really, good stuff (laughs) can become an idol? and You betcha. How do you know what's ruling your heart? What is it or who is it that you're living for? Well, it's hard to find out the answer to that just by asking. If I just ask you, you know, put on a piece of paper, you don't have to turn it in, just for yourself, who is it or what is it that you're living for? You'll say stuff like, well, for my family, for God, you're in church, so you'll say, for God. But Alfred Adler, who's a famous psychologist, said, that's not the way to get the truth. Here's the way to get to the truth of it. Look at your nightmares. What do you fear the most? What is the, the person or the thing that, if absent, would take away your desire to live? And whatever that person or thing is, that is your idol. And it may be good. But if it is ultimate and it's not God, then it's an idol. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose you're engaged to be married. You're engaged to be married. You're very much looking forward to the marriage. and You've been cultivating that relationship. And it is a good and a godly thing. But suppose as well, tragically, you break up. That will always naturally bring grief. To lose someone or some relationship that we cherish is is always going to be hard, whether that's a, a breakup, whether that's a death. But if the person was ultimate to you, if that person was the reason that you get up in the morning, if you have turned that good thing into an ultimate thing, it will not only be hard, it will be absolutely devastating to you. And there is no one and no thing in this life that has been designed by God to be ultimate for us other than Him. And let me just say, friends, as pastorally and as kindly as I can, sometimes God will choose to take away that idol to show you that it's become ultimate for you. Jesus was asked, you remember, what is the first and greatest commandment? And here was his response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and it is the greatest commandment, says Jesus. Martin Luther says that that particular command is identified by Jesus as first Because all of the others flow from it. You never break any of the other commands unless you have first broken this command. Have you ever thought about that? Lots of other commands, lots of other lists of stuff you do and don't do. So what about lying? You shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie. And so if I ask you, why do you lie? We all have. Why? Well, we might say well because I'm a sinner (laughs) but why do you lie in this instance and not in that instance and Luther says rightly it's because in that instance when you lie there is something you love more than God in that moment and so you love the approval of people And if telling the truth would tend toward their disapproval, you might lie. Or you love money. And if telling the truth means I won't get the sale, you might lie. Or you love power or you love comfort. Something that is so important is at stake for you that you're willing to lie to get it. There is something more important to you than Jesus Christ at that moment. So Luther said that under every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. And under every act of idolatry is a failure to believe what God has said. You see, I have to lie to get this sale because I've got to feed my family. God has said, I'll take care of you, but you don't believe that. God has said, I will reward you. What you do in secret, I will reward openly. But you have to get your accolades now from people because you don't believe that. And so that desire for approval now is functionally ruling your heart. And so why can't you forgive? Now please stay with me, because some of you cannot, let me rephrase that, some of you will not forgive. You've been in relationships for years, and you've been in church for years, and those relationships don't change because you won't forgive, and why will you not forgive? Or why will you not seek forgiveness? Here's why. Because your pride keeps you from humbling yourself to go to the one whom you sinned against and say perhaps in tears I have sinned against you for lo these many days, months and years I ask you to forgive me but I can't do that because see my worth is based upon my performance and if I say that then my performance has failed so we think So why do we not seek forgiveness, and why do we not grant forgiveness? So you've got to answer the question, as do I, my friend. If we're truly going to change, and change in ways that last, we've got to do what I say first in the outline. You've got to recognize the root. You've got to ask and answer, how does your heart resist the grace of God? In what particular and characteristic ways does your heart resist God's truth? And unless you apply that truth of God's grace to your heart, you will continue to never change. Come to church? Yeah. Read the Bible? Yeah. Change? Uh Uh-uh. You recognize the root. Secondly, You reject that root with repentance. Reject it with repentance. Now, repentance is a churchy word. It's one you hear when you go to church. But what's it mean? The word repent literally means a change of mind. And repentance in the Bible is a change of mind that leads to a change of life repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life and so rejecting having identified the root the idol or idols that are functionally controlling my heart now I reject that idol or those idols by changing my mind about them that is I no longer believe that they are the satisfaction for my soul and the thing toward which I pursue with all of my might But I believe what the gospel says, that Jesus is my first pursuit, that loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul is to be at the top of all of our priority lists. This thing or this person affects your relationships, your attitudes, your words, your emotions, The Bible says that it is so serious to have an idol that we pursue, that we use our thoughts and our energies and our bodies to pursue. It is so serious that Jesus said, you may remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, if your eye offends you, do what? Do you remember what he said? Pluck it out. Say, wow, there'd be a lot of maimed people. (laughs) Jesus was clearly using figurative language, But he was using violent language on purpose to show how serious this need for radical amputation is. Having identified it, we reject it. We reject it in absolute terms. We change our mind about what it can do for us. Recognizing that we believed the lie that it can supply for us what only God is intended to give to us. You'll only do that if you truly hate it, if you truly despise it. So I ask you, friend, as we as we engage now, that person, that thing that has gripped your heart and has functionally controlled you perhaps for years, do you hate it? Do you reject it? Have you changed your mind about it such that you believe what God says? If we do not, it means that we love it more than we want to please Christ. That we want it more than we want Christ. That's why God uses language like this in Scripture. Jesus said, pluck it out. Paul says in Colossians 3, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he lists a number of these things and they all he says amount to idolatry. I have to recognize the root, and then I have to reject that root idolatry, changing my mind about it. I mean, aren't you just sick of living the same way? Aren't you sick of the same hypocritical routine? I pray that the Spirit of God is moving on the hearts of some of His people now to reject with repentance the functional idols of our hearts. But it's not enough for God that we simply reject it because the human heart is always active. The human heart will never allow a vacuum There will always be someone or something to which our hearts are inclined. So you don't just reject what's wrong, but you embrace what is right. You don't just do radical amputation, but rather you do a replacement. Replacing the false God with the true and living God. And that's what I have thirdly in your outline. You replace it with rejoicing. You recognize the root, you reject it with repentance, you replace it with rejoicing. Thomas Chalmers wrote in a book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I'll mention that again in a moment. But he says there that no one has ever changed a habit just by trying. And yet, that's what so many of us have been doing. That's what the walking the aisle was about. Okay, I'm turning over a new spiritual leaf. I turned over that same new spiritual leaf a month ago. I'll keep turning I've been turning it over for decades. And Chalmers is right. No one's just changed a habit by just trying. Because he says this, the heart is so constituted that the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of, Of a new one. You see, if my affections, my love has been set on some false person or thing, the only way for the heart to dispossess of that old affection is by embracing a new one. You must have a new and greater passion. What we must have is an overmastering, positive passion. And that is why the one who wrote the words we just read a moment ago on the screen, put to death, also said this in the verses just before Set your hearts on things above. And not just things in general, there is one who is above in particular where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. So suppose you have two guys who each get a job at the same time making widgets. doesn't matter what they're making. They're going to be each on a line. They're going to be in different rooms, but they're going to be making the same thing. They're told how to do it, and one of them is told they're each going to work for 12 months. And one of them is told, at the end of the 12 months, you'll be paid $10,000. The other one is told, at the end of the 12 months, you will be paid a billion dollars. Now, assuming he believes that, which one of those guys has the better attitude when he comes into work? And what's the difference? They're both doing the same work. The nature of the work's the same. If we just find satisfaction in our work as a thing in itself, then they're both going to be the same. But no, we're looking, get this, we are always looking at what the activity we're engaged in will provide in the future, whatever that may be. And now this one who is told, That there are great riches for you at the end of this 12 month activity comes to work with a spring in his step because of what he has been promised, and he believes that promise. Whatever the hardships in that next 12 months, he'll endure them. And he'll endure them with joy because he believes what he has been told about what he has been promised. Do you believe what you've been told? with regard to the promises of God. What we need, each of us, with this new affection, is something akin to what you read in the Old Testament story of Jacob finding a wife. Some of you will remember this. We just completed our reading through the Bible in 90 days. So even if you didn't get through the entire Bible, you made it through Genesis. That would be the first book. In chapter twenty-nine, there is the story of Jacob eyeing a wife, Rachel, and she is so beautiful to him. He, the Bible says, he falls in love with her, and he asks for her hand. And her father Laban says, "You can marry her if you work for me for seven years." Hmm. Dad, I I'm sure I would have worked for you. My father-in-law is here for seven years. But, you know, most of us might have had to think about that for a moment. But here's what the Bible says. Jacob served Laban for seven years to get Rachel. And then it says, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. What does your life seem like? Drudgery, resentment, bitterness. And all of this lack of joy and all of this lack of enthusiasm is because we do not have a love for our Rachel, as it were, the Lord Jesus. And we love someone else or something more. We have failed to believe in what we have, and in what we are, and in what we are going to become in Jesus. And only to the degree that you see, friend, Jesus on the cross, turning your eyes toward Jesus, as we sang earlier, and you see Him on the cross losing everything for you, such that He becomes so beautiful that He controls your thoughts and your desires and your motivations. Only then will the functional idols of your heart cease to control you. Only when we rejoice and we rest in what Jesus has done for us will we serve Him with joy and gladness in every situation to which He has called us. At home, at work at church even in our failures and even in our sin I say in your take home truth at the bottom of your outline lasting change comes only when we replace the idols of our heart now that all assumes that you have a relationship with Jesus to begin with. And I've been talking to people who have begun a relationship with Jesus, having believed the good news of the gospel, but have gotten derailed because of external conformity rather than continual pursuit of repentance, expelling the idols that continually crop up in our hearts and always magnifying Jesus alone in our hearts. But in order for that to happen, for that life to be lived, it must start with you giving your heart to the Lord Jesus. Now, why must you do that? Because every person comes into this world, teaches the Bible, separated from God, because of our idolatrous desires. At, heart, at its heart, sin is idolatry. We want something or someone more than God, and all of us has that. And Jesus has come to pay the price that is owed to God because of that sin. He paid it by shedding his blood on the cross. And he's lived an absolutely perfect life of righteousness so that when you, in the moment we're going to pray, you bow your heart before him and you say, I know I have sinned. I know I'm an idolater in my heart. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sin. I ask you to forgive all of my sin, past, present, and future. The Bible says, he who calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued, will be saved. And so I encourage you, friend, to do that. And Christian friend, I pray that you have recognized some things about the root of your struggle that perhaps you did not see before. I encourage you to begin the repentance process in this sacred moment as we bow before our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to look at this most fundamental, important issue of our ongoing, every moment of every day relationship with you. Lord, our hearts are idle factories. We produce them, manufacture them of the raw material of anyone and anything at any moment. Apart from your grace, Lord, we cannot do this. But you have shown us your grace because we're here. You've shown us your grace because you've given us your truth. You've demonstrated your grace in having your Holy Spirit meet with us and convict the hearts of some of us with regard to our ongoing joylessness and idolatry that manifests itself in our criticism, our attitudes, our words, our condescension. O Lord Jesus, in your grace, draw the wandering heart wandering heart, back to you in repentance and enthroning you where you deserve and desire to be. I pray for any here who have never established a relationship with you by coming to you through the Lord Jesus, that right now they're acknowledging their own need, their own sin, and asking you to save them. And Thank you for your promise that we believe wholeheartedly that those who call, you will respond in saving grace. We love you because you first loved us. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.